Hmm. Let me ask you, please, to turn to Romans and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a lot this morning. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 30. And I'm going to cover all of that. <clears throat> now, I have to confess that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached over 80 sermons on Romans 8. And... Um, More recently, and a bit less ambitious, John Piper preached 30. I get two. Uh, So today I'm going to preach four, and next week I'll pick up the other two, (laughs) as you can tell. But as we come to this text, uh, you'll notice in the bulletin or on the screen a prayer of uh, illumination. It's a prayer that Martin Luther prayed as he opened the scripture, and so... I would like us to pray it together as we come to open the scripture as well. Let's pray together. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your infinite goodness and love to us. Continually keep us in the word, in faith and in prayer, that we may know how to walk before you in humility and in fear, so that we may not pride ourselves on our own wisdom and righteousness, skill and strength, but glory alone in your power that is strong when we are weak and gains the victory. Write into our hearts by the Holy Spirit what it is to abundantly found in the scripture. Let us continually keep it so that it becomes more precious to us than our own life and whatever we cherish on earth. So nurture us by your word that we would live to willingly and joyfully please you. Do you be praised and thanks forever. Amen. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And I'm actually happy uh, to take all of this in one big chunk. Uh, you may want to set your clocks for about 10 after, because that's about how long it will go, I suppose, maybe, or thereabouts. But, but it's good to see all of this together, I think, and to, to kind of walk through it, which is what I'll, I'll do with us. Because the theme of Romans 8, what we're going to look at, the theme of Romans 8 is that God is sufficient to save us from our sins. Keep that in mind. That God is sufficient to save us from our sins. We need no other, other than God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to save us from our sins, past, present, and future. He can do that. And, and so what Paul is doing here when he gets to chapter eight is that he's continuing his discussion and he's, he's kind of summing up a bit but he's continuing this discussion that he began really in chapter one when he laid out what the gospel is. And he says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. We need the power of God, you see, to save us. And so what is going to throw at us through these, this chapter eight is this power of God that is sufficient to save us. He begins right off the bat in verse one. And he says, there is therefore now, there is now that Christ has come, now that we're in the era of the Messiah, now that Christ has come, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now when he says no condemnation, he means no condemnation, all right? That, that it's impossible for one who's a believer in Jesus, born again by his spirit, it's impossible for such a person to ever be condemned by God. There simply is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you haven't memorized that verse yet, it's a simple one. You should make sure that it's in your go-to, in your head, uh, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It isn't an excuse to sin, of course. We'll see in a moment. And when we do sin, we confess our sins, just like we did this morning. But we confess our sins not because when we sin, we're again condemned, but because we love God, we know he loves us, and just like when you hurt another person, you confess to them, why? So that your conscience is clear, their conscience is clear, so you can restore, renew that relationship. And so we do the same thing with God when we sin. But remember, when we sin, that does not mean we're recondemned or condemned again. There is, in fact, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason is laid out in verses two and three. In verse two, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He says, now there's a new principle of life in us. There's a new law, there's a new principle, there's a new power in us. The old power, the old law, was the law of sin and death that was in us. That condemned us. But now there is in us the law of the spirit of life. And that's the Holy Spirit. Now in the Nicene Creed, we say that usually at Advent time, at least I did. I don't know what we'll do this year, but during Advent time, uh, use the Nicene Creed because it, it helped us a great deal with the incarnation. But there's a line in there as well about the Holy Spirit that's really helpful here. And one of the expressions is, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, because the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. You remember, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, John chapter three, he said that in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you had to be born again. And how does that happen? How do we receive this new life? Well, from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the giver of life. And so as a believer in Jesus, you need to recognize, we need to recognize that We've already tasted, if you will, of this spirit of life upon our coming to faith in Jesus. Because in order for us to really believe, our sin has to be overcome. The deadness of our sin has to be overcome so that we need then to have the spirit of God give us life so that then we can believe. So he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And we know that this power of God in us has set us free first from the penalty of sin and as we'll see in a minute from the rule and the reign of sin as well and all of this depends on Jesus verse 3 for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so in the incarnation when Jesus comes he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh he's not sinful but he comes, the body comes as a human being, as a man. And so he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he takes upon himself, as we know, our sin. It's imputed upon him. It's laid upon him, you see. So that he then dies for our sin, not his own. So he takes our condemnation. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only that, you see, we're set free not only uh, by uh, the penalty of this, of our sin, but also its power. Notice, if I can take the middle of verse three through verse four together. Uh, 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, on the one hand, the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us in Jesus. He took the penalty, broke its power. He took its penalty, he obeyed it. But he did all of that so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us, meaning that now we, walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, can obey. He wants to save us from our sins. You might remember from when we walked our way through 1 John some time ago. In 1 John in chapter 3, verse 5, John writes, you know that he, that is Jesus, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And that's what he came to do, to take away sins. It's, it's, it's um, guilt, thus the condemnation that comes, to take away its power so we can obey, and ultimately to take away its presence, which we'll see in glory. And so now you see what we're called to do is to, to obey, to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You remember in chapter seven, when we walked through chapter seven, when Paul saw the law, at first as an unbeliever, it stirred up more sin, but then even as a believer, it, it, it caused him some angst, obviously, because he realized still this law convicted him of his sin. And, and he cries out to God for help. Well, now in chapter eight, he reveals the help. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work in us, you see, to enable us to please God. Notice how he puts it. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who uh, uh, walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so you see, it begins by an understanding of who we are, that this sin no longer is to dominate my life that its rule and reign has actually been broken. And now I need to set my mind on the things, not of the flesh, that is not on my sinfulness, not on the things that, that used to drive me, excite me, my sin, but now to set my mind on the things of the, of the spirit. We'll look at that in a minute. Verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. See, the stakes here are eternally high. To continue to set our minds and live according to our sin is death. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. We are. But how we live gives evidence of our faith. So if we profess faith in Jesus and yet continue to live and be dominated by sin, doesn't mean we never sin, but to be dominated by sin to such a degree that when we do sin, we don't confess, we don't repent, we have no sensitivity to it, but, but sin continues to define and dominate our lives, then there can be no real assurance that you belong to Jesus. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so, by implication, those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, that is, the things that are pleasing to God. And now we can. And now we, now we can submit to God's law. Now, we can please him. Now, if you're tracking and you're thinking about your own life, you may be thinking, I want this to describe me. But I know my life, I know my sin. And it's, it's real easy back to get back caught up into all of that. And so, to show that God is sufficient to save us, we have verse nine. You, however, that is a believer of Jesus, the one who's in Christ, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, which means everybody who does belong to Christ has the spirit of God. And there's certain traditions that teach once you become a Christian, you've got to wait a while before the Holy Spirit really comes on you. And then when he does, kaboom, all is well. Well, I don't know if you've ever been kaboomed or not, but it doesn't solve all your problems. Uh, and, and so when we become a Christian, when you believe, when you're born again and, and are converted and express faith in Christ, you receive in this powerful way the Holy Spirit. You may not feel it in that kaboom kind of sense, but it's simply true and we have to, to realize it. And so what we're looking for here is not a, a, an experience and then an experience and then an experience, but we're looking forward to the ongoing work of the Spirit in our life. As a believer, we do have the Spirit of Christ. Now notice that he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. There aren't two spirits here. Is one Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit refers to himself here, God does, as the Spirit of Christ. And why is that? Well, because the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism is the same Holy Spirit that fills us and comes upon us. Is that remarkable? The same Spirit that indwelt Jesus is the same spirit that lives in us. And, and you think, well, what's it mean that he lives in us? You know, if you become a Christian, you get on the scale and go, oh, the Holy Spirit weighs a pound and a half. You know, I remember when we talked about this with our children, every single one of them went to the mirror, opened their mouth wide and said, I can't see him, right? Well, the sense of living means his life is in us. It's a great little book by a dead Puritan, Henry Scrobel. It's called, I don't, I don't like the book as much as I like the title, but the title is The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And anytime I'm just perusing my books to find something, I see that, I, I pull that out just to look at the title, just as a reminder that the life of God, the very Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Christ lives in me. And if I could point you to something about the life of Christ, do you remember that when Jesus was baptized, that the Holy Spirit came as a dove, and, every, and everyone heard the Lord God speak, the Father speak, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
I want you to hear that over you. I want you to realize that the spirit of Christ in us, the father says, this is my son, this is my daughter, I'm pleased with you. And you say, well, you shouldn't be, and he goes, I know, but I am, because you're in my son. And then the second thing, is you might remember that right after the spirit came on Jesus after his baptism, the very next expression after that goes like this, and he, Jesus, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now you might think, I can do without that. But the truth of the matter is, you can't because you have been, will be tempted by the devil. You'll be tempted in various ways. The good news is you have the same spirit of Christ. So the, the context here in, in putting these together is that we have the spirit of Christ for what purpose? So that we can walk according to the spirit. For what purpose? So that we don't walk according to the flesh. That is so that we can, uh, as he'll say in a moment, put this to death, this sin in us. And so this great hope that the Spirit of God comes upon us and even as we're tempted by the devil, he gives us strength and gives us help. But just to follow on in the context here, in verse 11, not only do we have help with the Spirit now, but verse 11 says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if we could wrap it up here, and we were wrapping it up here, which we are not, but if we were, we've seen it all. No condemnation, the Spirit of the Lord in you to help you to overcome sin and to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And even when we die, to receive life, to be resurrected in the presence of the Lord. Verse 12, so then, brothers, he says, here's how to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Remember, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, you don't know your sin anything. You no longer owe it anything. There was a time in your life you owed it everything. It was your life. That's all you knew, that this sin in you was, was all you knew, that you were going to live for yourself, live for your own pride, live for all that life could give you. But he says, you don't owe that sin anything anymore. By inference, now it is that you can live pleasing to the Lord. You owe everything, if you will, to him. Not to pay him back, but we're debtors to his goodness and his grace to us. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, see what we're to do now, where the spirit leads us, is to put to death the deeds of the body. This next expression, um, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You know, when you think about being led by the Spirit, what do you think about? Most often we think about guidance. We think, oh, I need to pray for guidance. I need for the Holy Spirit to lead, to lead me to figure out whether I should take this job or that job or major in this discipline or that discipline or, or buy this house or that house or this car or that car or marry this person. 
Usually it's not with that person because if we have one choice, that's even good. But, um, but, 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 but that isn't what Paul means, at least in this context, when he's talking about being led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit means to put your sin to death and to live to God. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now that sounds drastic, doesn't it? To put to death. It's no more drastic than when Jesus said, if you wish to follow me, you'll deny yourself and you'll take up your cross daily and follow me. So if you want to follow me, you have to deny your sinful self. You say, that self doesn't exist. I don't know that self to deny yourself. And then to take up your cross. Now, as we know, in Jesus' day, nobody would take a cross and put it on a necklace or on earrings. It's fine to do. I've bought my fair share of necklaces and earrings for people. But it, it simply wouldn't have happened because a cross in Jesus' mind is an instrument of execution. We'd like giving your sweetheart a necklace with a hangman's noose on it for Valentine's Day, right? That's what it was. So Jesus is saying, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Put your sin to death. Follow me. In fact, Jesus was very explicit in a figurative way as he spoke of this, for instance, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. He said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your, hand, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We know that Jesus was speaking figuratively. If not, we would be a bunch of one-eyed, one-hand, one-footed people. But we understand what he's saying. He's saying that's how deadly sin is. Put it to death. In fact, when Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, in Colossians in chapter 3, he gives the cliff notes, if you will, to what he's saying here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, same idea, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, but your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then he writes this, put to death, some of the older translations would put, crucify the flesh or mortify the flesh. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And here he lays it out in two different lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these sins, primarily sexual passions. And he says, if you don't put them to death, they'll kill you. They'll destroy your soul. They'll destroy relationships. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked 
when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, uh, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. These two kill relationships. And so he says, put them to death. That's what we're to do as we walk in the spirit. And now you say, well, how can I do that? I mean, how can I do that? We see, again, the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8 is the explicit identification of the Holy Spirit. We do this dependent upon, with the help of, the Holy Spirit, oh, we have no hope. And so he says that we put these things to death by the Spirit of God. Do you say, I don't know. I don't know that, that I can do that. So then he says, well, for all who are led in this way by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He says, listen, he says, he says, you're not to be afraid of coming to God for help in these matters. There was a time when you might have looked at your sin and said, the last person I want to talk about this is God because God will condemn me. But you're not condemned. In fact, he says to us that we're actually his children, that we have the spirit of adoption, that we've been adopted as his sons. And so our past life is no longer our life, you see just like an adopted son in Rome. It's no longer, it's wiped clean, it's wiped out, that's paid. Now a new identity, a new father to whom we owe our allegiance, this new father who will help us and care for us. And so he says, no, now you don't need to be afraid. You can come to me with your sin and I will help you with it. Acknowledge it. I will help you with it. My spirit will empower you to put it to death and to live to please me. We say, well, how do I really know? How do I really know that I belong to you? And he says, well, the spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are in fact a child of God. And then you say, well, how does that happen? It sounds like some kind of a mystical experience that I'm supposed to have this feeling of the Holy Spirit in me witnessing to my spirit that I'm a a child of God, and you think, I, I don't really trust those feelings. It could have been last night's pizza that I'm feeling right now, not the Holy Spirit. And I don't think Paul has that in mind. But there are times when the Spirit does indeed clearly witness to us that we are children of God. For instance, when you hear the gospel, and you go, yes, I believe that. That's the Holy Spirit witnessing to us that we are sons and daughters of God. We're children of God. When you read the scripture and you go, yes, that's true. I know that's true. I cling to this. This is everything to me. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit, you see, witnessing to our spirit. Yes, we are, in fact, children of God. But Paul gives us one here that is so clear. And he says that the spirit witnesses to our spirit, with our spirit that we're children of God, when we cry, Abba, Father. I mean, when we do that, most particularly when we cry, when we cry out, and when we cry out is the times when we're most desperate, 
we're most hurting, when we're most confused. And at times like that, where do you go? Now, unbelievers would say, you're crazy to call upon God. Look at your life. Look at the tragedy. Look at the difficulty. Look at what's happening. And, 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 and unbelievers say, you should run as fast as you can away from God. But yet we don't, do we? What do we do? We cry out to God. In the most intimate, the most familiar ways, Abba, Father. Because we know that we belong to him. We know that we're his child. And then we know, too, that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That little expression, fellow heirs with Christ, is, is of great importance because if you may think, well, well maybe I'll, I'll miss my inheritance of eternal life, but you know that Jesus won't. Jesus won't miss his inheritance. And so if we're co-heirs with him, then it can never be lost. But finally, this. He says, we're heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. <clears throat> now, I was doing really good up until this point. I, I, had, I had moved all the way from no condemnation to the Holy Spirit will help me deal with my sin to being glorified. But there's this little spot between called suffering before being glorified. And I think, huh, why is that there? Why does he bring it up here? Well, in part, because in the life of Jesus, there was suffering before glory. But perhaps even more so, if he doesn't raise suffering at this point, wouldn't you wonder about it? Wouldn't you say, listen, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I understand all of this, but my life is one, and the life of the people around me is such that I see suffering and I experience. So what's up with that? So he says, all right, I, I got to talk about that too, that there's suffering here, even as one who is my child. Your suffering doesn't mean you're condemned, no. Your suffering doesn't mean that, that you're under my wrath, no. Your suffering doesn't mean that I've abandoned you, no. The suffering means you're still my child, and you will suffer. Paul knew suffering. In fact, he made a statement on one occasion. He says, we must go through many hardships before we enter the kingdom of God. So he knew it. So suffering is really there. We all, we all get that. We all know that. And so he says, all right, here's what I, here's what I must tell you. That if, you have to, if you're going to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you have to set your mind on this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory with the glory that is to be revealed. And he said, this is what you have to know. I know the suffering's bad. I know it's difficult. I know it's painful. I know you see it all around you. But you need to know something. You need to fix your mind here. You need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You need to set your mind on this, that I can tell you that whatever suffering you've experienced, will experience, whatever suffering you see in the world isn't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. When you see the glory, when you see it, whatever you're suffering now will seem like nothing. It'll seem so small. Now, if you're like me, you can hardly imagine that. If you've suffered at all, 
Or if you read your newsfeed and see how others suffer in the world in which we live. Or if you read history and, and, and read how others have suffered who've gone before us. You can hardly believe it, but, but it's true, he says. You need to fix your mind on this. This is our hope. And he says this. He says, he says that the, the, even, the, even the earth is going to be so different because it's corrupted by sin, your sin, our sin. So it's corrupted, and so it's groaning to be set free, so much so that when you're on the new heavens and the new earth, and you'll never miss having not gone to Hawaii or whatever you've missed out on this life that you didn't get to see. Go to Hawaii, that's fine. But it, it's, it's that glorious. It's that glorious, you see. It's not worth comparing. And he said, even with us, we groan, right? Uh, like in the pains of childbirth, not only the creation, but us. Don't you groan? How many times in the last 18 months have you said, come Lord Jesus? Right? Many times. And it hasn't been that bad compared to what many people have experienced in life. But yet we're still groaning for that which is to come. And he says, you've got the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And that's true. You see, we have forgiveness of sins. We have the presence of the Spirit within us. We have this new life. We have this power in us that enables us to put our sin to death. And we have this great hope, you see. but we still wait. And you say, but sometimes the situation is so hard, I don't even know how to pray. So Paul says, we got that covered too. Because even when you don't know how to pray, even when the best you can do is groan, understand that the Holy Spirit is praying, groaning for you as well. He's using using words that perhaps are even too deep for you Words that even you could never express. But the Holy Spirit, you see, he's praying all the time in the will of God for us that we would be able to live in the power of the Spirit. Remember, <clears throat> a decade or so ago when Karen was in a coma, or a comma, as I like to say, it was just a brief pause. And... Uh, I'd be standing over her bed, numb. I was so appreciative of many of you who would come and pray. I knew some were praying at home, but I was numb, and I didn't really know how to pray. Oh, I mean, I prayed. I prayed stuff, but I, I, was, just, I was just numb, and this passage came to my mind. And the great comfort of knowing that though I did not know how to pray, that the Spirit of God knew how to pray, and that he was praying all the while. In fact, it, it was on my mind so much that it almost became comical, and I would smile, and I would go, Dear Lord, uh, whatever he says, it's the best I could do. And so in those times, God says, I'm sufficient. There's no condemnation because of what Christ has done. You've been set free because the spirit of life lives within you. So don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He will help you. Because you see, you're my child. Don't ever be afraid to come to me. 
Don't ever be afraid to express to me your sin and your weakness. I won't cast you out. In fact, I guarantee your inheritance eternal life. And I guarantee this inheritance, God says, I guarantee this inheritance for you is me. God says, I'm your inheritance. And I guarantee it. And even in this suffering, I've got that covered. Because the day will come when you'll realize that what you're going through isn't worth comparing to the great glory that you will experience. And I know you're groaning, but I've given you my spirit. And he will pray for you at those times particularly when you have no idea how to pray. And please know this, God says, verse 28, I could spend a year here, that we know that for those who love God, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God says, I'm arranging even this suffering, I'm arranging everything in a way that is for your good. Please trust me. Because I have a purpose in everything for you and I have a purpose for you. And here's his purpose, verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He says, everything that's happening, all these things are working together in such a way that you'll be conformed to the image of my son. And there could be no higher blessing than that. And he says, it's guaranteed, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's sufficient from beginning to end. Now the question that we should be asking now is the question that Paul raises in the very next line, what shall we say to all these things? Well, we'll get into what he says to all these things next week. But just let me give you this for today. As we walk through, went through Romans 8 in one big fire hydrant explosion. Go back through it. And here's what I think we should say to these things. Thank you, Father. I trust you, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for ordaining this way of salvation. Thank you for your electing sovereign grace. Thank you for your convincing Holy Spirit, thank you for your obedient son. Jesus, thank you for coming and giving yourself. We trust you. We trust you in, for our eternal destiny. And Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to live in such a way that we would be pleasing to God. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.